Dr. Dexter is a critical care pulmonologist. She is running for Mitch Greenlick's seat, who has represented District 43 in southwest Portland and part of Washington County for nearly two decades, one of the longer-serving state representatives in Oregon. Maybe at this point the dean of the House is retiring, opening the door for new representation, and Dr. Dexter, I do not believe is the inspiration for the TV character, but is here with us on X-Ray. Good morning, Doc. Good morning. Who are you and why are you running? <laughs> Thank you for having me. I, just a quick um, a quick uh, tidbit. It is actually House District 33. I, I don't think most people know them um, by their number, but just in case those out there... Oh, if I misspoke, forgive it. me. No worries. So I uh, grew up outside of Seattle in a working class family and really am here because of a resilient community and a great public school system. And I've um, worked my way with a union job through um, all the rest of high school, college and into medical school and came back to Portland after training in Denver because my family is um, kind of spread along the northwest coast. So. Our, my husband and I wanted to bring our kids back home. And so I'm really running for this seat because I believe in resilient communities that we need to invest in our working class families and that we have to get universal health care for every Oregonian. And as a doctor, but also uh, the first woman to chair the board of directors at Northwest Permanente, the, the Kaiser Permanente uh, Physician Group, I have the experience as well as the insight to be able to lead on health care reform. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for being here. And Mitch Greenlick, and obviously I knew him and served with him. And he, uh, and he was he was not a, he was not a medical doctor, but was uh, but was one of the most steeped people in Oregon politics around the intersection between the practice of medicine, between healthcare policy and political decision making. Where do you see the state losing with him stepping away? What expertise do you worry that we might have a gap now, and where might you uh, be able to fill in? That's exactly one of the reasons this is such a timely election. Um, Mitch has been a staunch advocate for um, really focused public health policies throughout his tenure for 20 years, and with him leaving, you know, Andrea Salinas is an amazing um, chair of the healthcare committee, but she herself and, and others admit that, you know, the policy lives and dies in the details. And those of us who work in healthcare understand that, you know, the policy in a different way than those, you know, who are kind of um, on the on the fringe of, of understanding and what the actual system does. So with Mitch leaving it, it's an amazingly large hole. Um, actually, with Lori Monas Anderson, who's been chairing the healthcare committee in the Senate, leaving as well, there's really a dearth of expertise in the House. And, and Rachel Kruzak is doing an amazing job, and Rob knows. But but those you know folks need more support as well as the leadership of someone who's actually been a healthcare delivery system. Um, leader for years and and i have been in the healthcare system that i believe is a model for what we should be doing at the state level for 12 years and and so i really feel like it's a time where we need healthcare reform 
Um, we spend 27% of our budget by far the most um, of any of the line items on healthcare, and we aren't getting what we need out of that investment. And we can see that with painful clarity during this um, COVID-19 pandemic. A pulmonologist relates to the lungs, yes? Correct. And that means you've seen COVID-19 up front. I mean, it is not, it is not merely a respiratory disease, but it seems, it seems to, from my lay perspective, uh, impact folks particularly with respiratory problems. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, pulmonary critical care is a historically um, linked um, double subspecialty. So pulmonologists were the ones who developed um, ventilators actually at Denver where I trained um, years ago. And so critical care is where we are taking care of the sickest um, COVID-19 patients. And that is also my specialty. So I see patients in the clinic um, who have respiratory illnesses, asthma, COPD, lung cancer, you know, anything with shortness of breath and cough. So certainly COVID-19 patients could come there. But right now, because we're really um, trying to keep people home, except for if they're really seriously ill, the majority of the people that I've seen have been in the intensive care unit. What have you noticed in seeing, I, I think you may be, you're not the first person I've talked to who's, I mean, a friend of mine had COVID-19 and experienced the symptoms. My pop might have had it. Uh, what have you noticed? What have you witnessed? How would you uh, describe the experience? It's extremely variable. I think that that's one of the most confounding um, aspects of the uh, infection is that we know that some people are tested as positive who had no idea that they were sick. In fact, they weren't sick. They were carriers without any symptoms. And it goes the whole gamut to people who come in fulminantly ill, unable to breathe, and having to be put immediately when they show up in the emergency room on life support. Um, the real um, confounder is that people can come in and look pretty okay. Um, so many patients have come into the ER and haven't looked that sick and go home, and then they're back within 24 hours fulminantly ill, like really sick, and you just can't predict who that's going to be. So um, it's kept us all on our toes for sure. How is the state doing with our response? With our, excuse me? With our response. How would you characterize Oregon's response to COVID-19? Well, I, the first thing I would say is Oregonians have been remarkable in their um, flexibility and their willingness to embrace the public health over their own you know, personal comfort and even their um, economic well-being. So um, Oregon itself has done a really remarkable job. Um, I think, you know, I, I helped um, encourage Governor Brown to take um, definitive action on social distancing and closing schools um, earlier on. And I will give her great credit. She listened um, to expertise and, and made some really brave choices. And so, um, you know, I, we aren't perfect, but I, I think it's a manifestation of disinvestment in our public health system and our emergency response plans and you know, I think people have done absolutely the best they could considering the lack of investment that we've put into it. And so I think that this is an opportunity for us to recognize that 
we could be better prepared when this does happen again. And frankly, it's going to happen again. Um, and I want to help lead you know, the effort to make sure that we aren't caught on our heels again. Where are the investments? Where's the lack of investment playing out most specifically? You mean in terms of like the failure to stockpile PPE? Where else? Yeah, no, I think that the public health infrastructure has been really um, underinvested in. We don't have uh, enough. We have really great community health workers, but we do not have um, the army of folks that we need to be able to do contact tracing, containment, like the way to move forward if we want to reinvest or to reopen our economy is to be able to contain all infections. This is not going away probably in years until we figure out whether and if um, vaccination works. You know, this is a virus that is extremely infectious and we are finding that people may be able to be reinfected. So we aren't sure how we're gonna manage the infection and the risk of infection itself, but what we can do is invest in our public health infrastructure so that we have healthcare workers, public health community workers who can do the contact tracing if you are tested positive, that they can make sure that we get those folks who are at risk um, out of the general population so that it can be contained. And that takes a lot of people and it takes a lot of testing, neither of which we have right now. Forgive this compound question. I, I am reminded by a conversation I had with a professor of mine back in the day, Dr. Troyan Brennan, who was also the head of Brigham and Women's Hospital. He was like a, a Yale JD, Harvard MD, and uh, taught, but then also ran uh, ran a major hospital. and And he was, uh, and he said, well, you know, Jeff, the biggest uh, impacts that we've made on lifespan and on on health impacts have not been from health care but been from public health and that sort of shook me because i you know watch commercials for politicians and they always seem to focus on uh, health care policy health insurance policy more than public health policy have we seen is it disinvestment we've seen in public health that is was there some time in a bygone era when we had significantly more public health capacity or is it more that just there's always been underinvestment? and the compound portion of the question is how much more do we need what is that either in terms of percentage or amount of dollars or amount of human beings so um the first answer is i think that public health investment it's human nature to invest in it when you see threats to people's lives. Um, so it's easy to disinvest um, when you don't see it. So we can see this across our nation right now, and, and it's a really concerning period of time where clean air, clean water, these are, you know, waste systems, you know, where do we put our garbage? Where are we putting nuclear waste? Those kinds of things have really been public health issues over, you know, the entirety of our history as a nation. And, um, you know, tuberculosis, when that was really a prominent issue, became um, a focus for public health investment. So it, it's human nature to become relaxed when you get things contained. Um, certainly our vaccination strategies and, and whatnot have um, been part of that. Um, I think the number one impact, and especially in the Portland metro area, um, is clean air. And we have to, I think, environment and public health policy go hand in hand. We can't um, disengage them from one another. And yet we have thought that we can. And so 
the lack of um, EPA investments um, are, you know, concurrent with our letting um, clean water and clean air protections go down. And so when you have people in public policymaking positions who care about public health, you invest in environmental protection as well because they are so deeply intertwined. And we know that air quality right now is extremely relevant because those who are exposed to high particulate matter are more likely to have inflammatory diseases, including heart attacks, strokes, um, cancers, and um, the death rates with COVID-19 are ex extremely noteworthy um, to be higher in areas with high um, air pollution. And Portland, frankly, is one of the highest um, regions in the country for air pollution. Even though we think of this as being a really green environment, our particula particulate matter is, is um, one of the highest in the nation. Anything that you think people would find interesting about it, we now have some indication, some data that does seem like air pollution has a strong, as you were talking about, uh, correlation with mal events with COVID-19, right? If you're a smoker, it goes worse. And if you got worse air pollution, it goes worse. This seems to overlap with your area of expertise. Can you help us understand to the extent anybody knows, like help us understand why that is? Yeah, so um, the particulate matter is um, of varying size and the airways in our lungs um, go from large where your windpipe is to smaller and its branches kind of like an upside down tree um, with the branches that get smaller and smaller as you go to the top and out to the edges. And so particulates um, that you inhale, you can't see them. If you can smell it, you are inhaling it, um, goes into your lungs and it gets lodged wherever the, you know, it's kind of like a, a clog that goes in a pipe. As soon as it can't pass any further, it gets stuck there. And then that creates an inflammatory reaction because it doesn't belong there. The lung understands that it's foreign. And so there's inflammation to try to get rid of it. And so that inflammatory reaction is what's happening in a lot of disease processes. And then it actually can get into the bloodstream. So if it's a carcinogen, say, from you know, certain kinds of industrial particulate matter or diesel, um, it can absolutely um, get into the bloodstream from there because the lungs are intricately um, linked to the bloodstream but also it's just that inflammation that can trigger asthma, COPD exacerbations, and, and predispose people to pneumonia. Switching back a gear, you were talking about that we need to reinvest in public health, and you were saying, even in your campaign materials, how we need to ramp up, move towards single-payer uh, in the country. Where do you think the next step is in terms of money getting for the kind of programs you're talking about. If we're talking about more public health workers, we're talking about greater access to health insurance. Uh, where, how do you want to raise that money or what do you want to cut in the current budget in order to afford it? No, that's a great question. And, and I think that that's what's been underpinning um, the concerns about single payer all along. I think it's, it's the first thing that we have to do is accept as a nation that healthcare is a right and it's um, a right that we should give to all of our citizens. Once you ex accept that, then if you, as a policymaker, understand that any investment into that system is effectively a tax, we are paying extraordinarily high taxes on healthcare. So our individual deductibles, premiums, co-pays, all of that 
is what we as citizens are paying for something that we should have as a right um, provided by our government. So our government is already, in effect, taxing us if we could just shift our thinking to thinking about healthcare as something that should be provided to all of us in the same way that we believe that public schools or you know other um, certain um, policies in our, our government structure have been accepted. So I think that, first of all, we are spending far more on healthcare than any other country in the world. And that's not just that's without taking into consideration what each of us are taking or paying out. So we are already spending far more on healthcare than we need to. Um, the difference is the complexity and the uh, varying uh, income or revenue generators for different corporations. It's such a complex system that everyone is making a margin at every level, whether it's the pharmaceutical company, the insurance company, the hospital, the clinic, Everyone has to be able to make um, ends meet in this budget environment. So a single-payer system streamlines that and cuts your um, cost by at least 30% overall. Um, so if we are spending 27% of our budget currently on healthcare, and you could save 30%, we, and we're almost um, covering all Oregonians as it is right now, although that's absolutely changing as people are losing their jobs right now. We don't necessarily need to invest more. We need to invest differently. Am I going to say we won't have to raise taxes? Absolutely not. But people's total out-of-pocket costs for health care, including their 27% of their taxes that they pay every year, plus their co-pays, they will spend less on health care overall if we were to streamline the system. Yeah, it was the Elizabeth Warren argument. I hear that. Do you think there's a chance to get the votes in Oregon, in the Oregon legislature, to do a state, you know, rather than waiting for the federal government, rather than hoping Mitch McConnell will do something or hoping that there was a change in the U.S. Senate plus a change in filibuster rules, do you think there's a chance Oregon could move to single payer just in the state? Yeah, so we can't do it um, with Medicare funds because that it requires a federal waiver, although there are um, bills proposing just that um, from um, Congresswoman Jaya Paul and, and Senator Wyden. But um, we could do it with a statewide mandate and Medicaid expansion. So Medicaid is a state-run um, program with investment from the federal government, but we do have the liberty to use it as we wish. So. I, I do believe that um, much as uh, um, Supreme Court Justice Brandeis had said that the, the states are the laboratory of democracy, I, you know, a lot of the progressive policies that we've developed at, at the federal level have started in the states, and Oregon is a prime opportunity to do this. And, and if there ever was an opportunity, it's right now when people are losing their jobs and we have um, tied health care to employment for too long. So I think with a Medicaid expansion that is open to everyone of every income, sliding scale payments so those who don't make enough get it for free and those who make a lot more pay more, um, we can do this at the state level. And I think that this is an incredible opportunity when people are economically really disadvantaged and unexpectedly so. People are going to really need us to invest um, in our economy, and I believe that universal health care in Oregon is a really important way to jumpstart the economy. Imagine if employers didn't have to pay 
um, directly for premiums that they can't control the cost of. You know, I know as having run a business, if your healthcare premium goes up by 12% and you're offering that to your employees, you have 12% more to find in your budget so that you can continue to just maintain um, your benefits for your employees. Imagine how much more um, business could be liberated if people didn't have to make sure that they had enough margin or revenue to take care of the healthcare coverage. If they knew that there was going to be a 3.4 only percent increase every year, zero percent increase in the money that they were putting into the system, and that all of their employees would have full coverage, it really liberates things. And then, you know, the other companies who aren't paying for healthcare, you know, we have we're effectively subsidizing. Uh, the workforce for for companies who aren't offering benefits, um, if they have to pay into the system because they are, you know, their employees are on, you know, whether it's SNAP programs or healthcare, then we should be um, equal, creating an equitable market for all companies to be investing in those things. So those who are already providing it, great. Those who aren't, you get to pay more so that everyone has health care. I really think that um, we have to do that as a government, and this is the time to get it passed. We're talking to Dr. Maxine Dexter in just a little bit. It will be time for news with my dad. I know that Pop is waiting. I was going to say patiently. Uh, as you know, as a, as a guest, Dr. Dexter is a candidate for House District 33 in southwest Portland, part of Washington County. When we do these, we know that not everybody is in that legislative district, so we try to go a little bit deep on a topic that will be useful to you regardless of where you vote. And Dr. Dexter is a pulmonologist and advocating for single-payer health care in Oregon. And by the way, what you were saying, uh, Dr. Dexter, is similar, almost identical argument that John DiLorenzo, longtime Republican advocate, the case he was making Uh, I am, though, interested in the politics behind this. How do you actually get it passed? We saw that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are having a hard time making the case uh, with with some Democrats, with labor union Democrats in the country, because so many of those uh, so many of those organizations like the idea of their employer sponsored packages. In fact, it's part of what they offer to their members. Right. It's part of the the sort of benefit set that they negotiate for and part of the value proposition that a given labor union is able to make to its members that it has. How, how, are you, how do you navigate the politics around trying to pass single-payer health care in Oregon where you're going to have to navigate between the scylla of folks who want to, you know, labor union folks who want to keep uh, who, who want to keep employer-based care and the cribdis of folks that just don't want government to pay for much at all? Yeah, it's a really great question. I have um, gotten to test out this um, dynamic as I've been talking to union leaders across the state or, you know, across the major um, groups in our state. And um, what I think is um, real is that um, unions have created our middle class. They have created the expectation that we have retirement and certain benefits. And I think it's time to declare a win. Healthcare should be a right that everyone, regardless of whether or not you're represented by a union, can expect. If we take that as you know just a principle that everyone gets healthcare, the investment that our unions have um, bartered or bargained for um, can then be redistributed to what if we had on-site childcare, or what if there was affordable subsidized housing? You know, I, now I don't think that employers should be doing that either, but 
we can broaden our expectations. What if, you know, universal pre-K was um, something that everyone could expect? Then, then we can move to the next thing. But I think that the unions have advanced the position, the social um, uh, security of our working families since they came about. And that's an incredibly important um, role that they've played. And I think it's time to move to the next thing. Like there are many different concerns for our people that they can help us um, bargain for and secure. So I absolutely think, and I've had a lot of support from union leaders on that. It is part of their package and it is going to have to take negotiation, but those unions and employers who have already been providing those coverages need to be, um, in, you know, in effect rewarded for that. And then other companies need to be brought up to that level. Did that From, cost and you? I'm glad that you, oh, I'm sorry, I'm glad you, that you um, mentioned John DeLorenzo because I think, like, there is an argument to be made from a more conservative business-focused um, side. And so it's really focusing on the outcomes and then creating policy that everyone can get behind without the, the partisan identity politics that we are all so used to these days. Did that position cost you some labor endorsements? I'm seeing the endorsements in this race, and it looked like a bunch, it looks like a bunch of labor union uh, endorsements went to another couple other candidates. Yeah, I, I am very lucky to have the um, endorsements that I do have from unions, and um, you know, I think, is, and you would know this better than most, that um, we don't necessarily um, trust physicians um, in this state. You know, I think that I don't have, not, and I, let me walk that back, that's not true. I think that um, unions have been less than um, pleased with some of the physicians and the um, the equity lens that some um, leaders have had in the past. And so I, I don't think that that's the reason. I think the honest reason is that we're all good candidates. We distributed the um, union endorsements throughout us, throughout the group. And um, one of the candidates has, done, has um, employment law background and has done work that is really important work that helps support unions and relationships matter in politics and so I think got the support because um, she was a known entity and, and I think that that you know is if I'm a strategic planner in a union that that makes a lot of sense to me so I, I don't begrudge that I'm, I'm going to be an advocate for working families and unions when I'm elected and and I think that we are all good candidates and and that was really the reason that they're distributed the way they are Dr. Maxine Dexter candidate for House District 33 thank you so much for spending the time with us where can people find out more probably the website Yep, MaxineForOregon.com, and I am so grateful for your time and, and your interest. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for giving a crack at serving the state. You be well. Thank you. You too.